Amen. Well, what is faith? And we can look out over the landscape of faith in maybe even the evangelical church that we see in the United States and see many different definitions, many different emphases of faith. Is it just a matter of internal belief? Is faith something that we just believe in the, the privacy of our own hearts? Or, or does it go deeper than that? Is faith a matter of emotional energy and zeal? The more you get excited about something, then therefore the more true that it is. If you experience something powerful enough, does it make it real? What about the object of faith? We can have faith in many things, and faith does require an object. Some of them are true. Some of them are false. And these are all questions that, we, that are critical for us to answer when we look at the Christian faith from a biblical perspective. And Paul is going to tell us all about the nature of faith today. So if you're not in Romans already, head over to Romans. We're busting into chapter 10 this morning, making progress. Last week, we finished up chapter 9 by looking at God's particular plan of salvation. Our text showed us some specifics that salvation is not restricted by ethnic background, but it is restricted to a remnant. Salvation can never be based on what we do, but only what Jesus has done, and therefore it all comes down to faith, our faith in the particular plan of God. This week, we learn more about faith as we continue in chapter 10. Just look at the first four verses together. Paul writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul's writing to the church at Rome. He's calling them brothers. And once again, like the start of chapter 9, he's lamenting about the spiritual state of his Jewish brothers and sisters, his Jewish friends and Jewish families. Paul, a former Pharisee of Pharisees, of course, Jewish himself, one of the greatest leaders of Judaism, and one of the greatest persecutors of the new Christian church, thinking he was persecuting the Christian church as doing something that is good and honoring to God himself. And yet he became, after conversion, of course, the church's greatest missionary and church planter. Yet his heart still aches for his Jewish brothers and sisters who are still lost. They have not come to faith. They have still rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He says, therefore, that his heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. And we note a few things in this first course. Uh, of course, it's a, it's a matter of Paul's heart. This isn't just a, a doctrinal debate. This isn't just something that they disagree about. Paul's heart is engaged in this. You can feel his pain. Recall in 9 verse 2 where he said he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart about them. So Paul is is agonizing over this. It's not just a doctrinal debate of who's right and who's wrong. Second, he prays to God for them, specifically for their salvation. And we have swum in some very deep waters these last couple weeks in Romans where we see that God has chosen some, he has elected some for salvation, and he has elected some for judgment, right? That is God's secret knowledge. That is the way God works. 
but that doesn't stop us from praying for our lost loved ones, friends, and families. Indeed, we should follow Paul's example here, and we should be praying for those that are lost, for God to save them, God to open their eyes. And let me get to that word saved. It's such a Christian word, saved. We ask that question probably better by saying, saved from what? And the answer is saved from God's wrath from sin, for sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our, our substitutionary sacrifice that we just talked about a moment ago at the table that allows us to have forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Jesus saved us from the wrath of God by taking the wrath of God for us in our place. And so if you're a Christian, you are saved specifically from God's wrath for sin that you justly deserve because of your sin. That is what we are saved from. That's what all people who place their faith in Jesus Christ are saved from. And that's what Paul wants his Jewish brothers to be saved from. Paul laments that his Jewish brothers are not saved, that they are still in danger of God's wrath for sin. Why? Well, he tells us with another for or another because. He testifies on their behalf that they actually have a zeal for God, but that zeal is not based on knowledge, he says. What does he mean? Paul knows this more than anyone, right? The academics, not that they're not smart people. Paul was a, a PhD Pharisee for crying out loud. Paul knew. He knew a lot. There was a lot in his brain. He's not suggesting that his brothers and sisters who are still uh, unsaved don't know anything or they're stupid or something. He's saying what they lack the knowledge of is the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. That's the knowledge that they lack. The knowledge required is the knowledge of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and that is what they refuse to acknowledge. Verse, uh, verse 3, rather, explains, they are ignorant of the righteousness of God, and they substitute their own righteousness. We said last week that there is no other plan. There is no other arrangement. There is no other way to be forgiven, to be reconciled, God has provided one way through Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ. Yet, he says, his Jewish brothers and sisters have, are trying to create their own way. Again, their own righteousness. And of course, their way is obedience to the law. Their way is checking the boxes in the religious law, all 500 or 600 odd things that they have put all around the law and the Mishnah when they continue to try to obey their way into righteousness, and that is a terrible plan. We're all already disqualified. We read the law this morning. We're all already disqualified because we all have broken God's law already. So therefore, false start. Can't do anything about it. We've already broken God's law. We can't obey something that we've already broken verse 4 tells us that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. The law, you see, was the mediator between God's people, Israel, and God. And now that Christ has come, the time of the law being the mediator between God and his people is over. We have a new mediator. It's not the law anymore. It's Jesus Christ. Our righteousness is not based on obedience to that law, therefore, but rather on faith. It doesn't matter how much religious zeal you might have. If you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, you are lost. And so here's our first point. Faith is not a matter of religious zeal. 
Faith is not a matter of religious zeal. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Religious zeal is a good thing. I'm not saying that we have to be all stoic and emotionless. Jonathan Edwards wrote much about religious affections. Right? If there's something in your heart and you believe it to be true, there should be emotions that reflect that appropriately. But we can be off base. We can be led astray with zeal and emotions that is not based on the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. And Paul knows this personally because, of course, in Galatians, he wrote, he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Notice he didn't say how extremely zealous I was for God and his glory himself. He was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers and the law. But zeal, without knowledge of Jesus Christ, church, is not faith. It's religious zeal. That's what Paul says. Their zeal was based on obedience to the law, and that is just not the way that God has established it for righteousness. Paul's made it clear already that several times, most notably in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It's impossible. Righteousness cannot come through obedience to the law. We've talked about that time and time again. One author puts it this way, the distinguishing line among all human beings is not between those who have zeal and those who do not, but between those who have faith and those who do not. Anytime we bring the law in, we have to frame it biblically. In the light of the whole counsel of God's word, what is Paul using the law for? What is he saying here that Christ is the end of the law? Greek here is the word telos. It, It could mean multiple things. It could mean end. It could mean goal. It could mean purpose. And scholars, as you might imagine, have engaged in all sorts of exegetical warfare, taking their camps and what does it mean? I always kind of tend to chuckle at those things and skip the 50 or 60 pages in the commentary where they're all squabbling about which way is right. And I usually end up saying, why do we have to narrow it down to one thing? It's usually all of the above. Dr. Schreiner agrees with me. He says, Jesus Christ is the goal and the purpose of the law. And the law points to him. At the same time, he is the end of the law. When Christ came, the goal of the law was met in salvation. History in the law was set aside as a covenant. Believers are no longer under the provisions of the Mosaic covenant. The result of Christ being the goal and end of the law is that now right standing with God is available for all who put their faith and trust in him. Church, we have a new mediator. It's not the law anymore. It's Christ. And Paul's going to make that point very, very clear in a minute. Christ fulfilled the law in every possible way, which is what Paul's Jewish brothers and all of us are after. We're all after righteousness. But it's not through obedience to the law. It's through faith, no matter how much religious zeal you might have. And so anytime we look at the law, we have to look at the law through the new mediator, Jesus Christ, and what that means. We still see misplaced zeal today. If you happen to go to Israel, happen to visit the Western Wall or any other places, Western Wall, maybe it's what struck me. Uh, Most of all, you see people frantically praying, prayer shawls and putting little notes in the cracks of all the rocks and they're rocking back and forth, frantically, fervently praying as ways 
to gain God's favor. We, of course, see radical Islam in a holy war of, to wipe out all infidels with their enthusiasm and their zeal for their religion. Maybe we see most relevant to our context here in the United States, zealous disciples of the religion of self. Where we are king, where we are Lord, where we are Savior, my feelings are king. Therefore, they must be obeyed at all costs. My feelings control all things about me, even some twisted views about sexuality and gender. And you not only have to tolerate it, you have to celebrate it. Talk about zeal without knowledge. Other spiritual paths are still based in works-based righteousness, and most of the time, they make up the works themselves. I'm going to create my own path to God. I'm going to be spiritual in my own way, and I'm going to be super zealous for what I'm laying down, my own principles. And yet, without Christ, it is a zeal without knowledge. It's really good that our salvation is not based on our own personal zeal, is it not? Because let's be honest, right? Some days, maybe we just don't feel it. Some days, we just don't feel the Christian thing. And what does that mean? We're not saved If religious zeal, if salvation is based upon how much emotion I can come up with, some days I'm probably not saved then. We realize that is not what the Bible says, fortunately. The Bible says that salvation is not, faith is not about spiritual zeal. If salvation were a matter of emotional stability and emotional excitement towards God, we would have no hope some days, would we? Sometimes we have nothing in the tank And that's why it's a really good thing that faith is not a matter of religious zeal. Faith is not a matter of zeal, but zeal, of course, has to be grounded in Jesus Christ. When we say we have faith in Christ, what are we actually saying? Paul goes on to say, look at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved." We have another giant Pauline for or because, another big purpose clause in verse 5. And Paul calls another witness to the stand to testify to his, his argument here. And he calls the big Mo. He calls Moses. He says that Moses writes, no present tense there, spe- scripture is still speaking. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. He quotes He alludes to Leviticus 18.5 and among many other passages to prove his point. He says that Moses talked about righteousness based on obedience to the law, but he's not saying that that's a positive thing. The way to be righteous was to obey the law. That was the common thought. That's what people thought when they read Moses. And he says, if you're going to do the law, if you're going to obey the law, you're going to live by it. You are, you are kind of a prisoner under that law. You obey the law and you live. You disobey the law and you will die. That was kind of the the common understanding of how the Jewish mind related to the law. But the problem was that everybody, of course, disobeyed the law. 
Paul is using this, therefore, as a negative example and further reason why obedience to the law does not work for righteousness. Instead, he says, but, right, note the contrast in verse 6, but the righteousness that is based on faith is different. And he goes on to quote some wonderfully confusing passages from Deuteronomy 30. Let's read them and be confused together. Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting in verse 11. As long as I'm in the right chapter. Okay. For the commandment, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you can do it. In context, we parachute into Deuteronomy here and we see that Moses is encouraging them after uh, re-covenanting, renewing the covenant together. Moses is heading off the objection that Israel might be able to say to them, Moses, this law is just too hard to understand. Moses, I don't even have a copy of this law. Like, I don't even remember what I'm supposed to be doing. And Moses says, it's not that complicated. It's right here. It's very clear. You can't use that as an excuse. It's, it's pretty basic. I just gave it to you. I just told it to you. And he says, you can do this. Not, of course, meaning salvation through the law. But you can't obey the law. It's pretty obvious. We just read it. Pretty obvious stuff. Moses says, so don't overcomplicate this. Paul cites this passage to prove the same point. But look at something huge in the way that Paul writes this. Back in Romans 10, instead of the word commandment where he quotes Deuteronomy 30, he uses Christ. He says, do not, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Once again, confirming. He's replacing the commandment with Christ. Once again, confirming that the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you can no longer look at the law without looking through Christ. If that doesn't say Christ fulfills the law, maybe nothing else does. Except, of course, Jesus Christ in his own words saying when he fulfilled the law. Paul says that we can never have the excuse that the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ is too far off. He says we can never have the excuse that we just can't understand the gospel of salvation, that we don't know what to do, that it's too complicated. He says neither do you have the excuse, or maybe a related nuance of that, is saying you don't have to do anything superhuman here. You don't have to go to heaven and bring Christ down. You don't have to go down to the abyss and bring Christ up from the dead. We're not talking about these superhuman feats of understanding or strength or something. Paul says it's basic. It's near you. He says the word, the gospel, is near. In fact, it's in your mouth and in your heart. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 again to see what he means by that. Because, right, that's why he's explaining it to us. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Paul says that they are proclaiming something different. His his Jewish friends who have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, they're proclaiming something opposite, something antithetical. 
to what the gospel is in obedience to the law, the word of faith. And Paul says it's not complicated. If you confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, you will be saved. Anyone will. And when he uses that word raised from the dead, it's shorthand for all of the events of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. If you believe in in Jesus and who he was and what he did and why it mattered. And Paul says that they're proclaiming something different and he is proclaiming the truth. He's saying like Moses, that this truth is accessible. This truth is possible for you to attain. And he gives the action that we need to take and it's not obedience to the law. It's confession and it's faith. And note the order that verse 10 says it in. You first need to believe for justification and then you can confess with your heart and be saved. It's not hard to see. It's not hard to understand. But nonetheless, there's something sobering about what we are confessing. And here's what we're confessing. You're confessing Jesus is Lord. Lord means king, master, authority over our lives. We put our full trust in Jesus, our Lord, to provide everything for us because he is sovereign and he is good. Faith, therefore, is not just a private belief of something that we believe in the privacy of our own bedrooms. Although we do believe it privately, of course. It is not merely limited to that. Faith is not just a a private belief in a benevolent God who wants to bless us. Faith is a confession that we have fallen on our knees, and from a heart full of faith, we say, Jesus, you are Lord, and I am not. And what you say goes. So the second point, faith is a confession of lordship. Faith is a confession of lordship. One of the earliest Christian confessions in the church is Jesus Curios which means Jesus is Lord. And if you said that with your lips, that was one of the earliest creeds that they would walk around and probably greet each other with. Jesus curios. Why is that so fundamental? And if we, if we look at that in context, right, in the first century Roman Empire, there was another greeting that people walked around and probably said to one another, and that was Kaiser curios. Caesar was Lord. You see, a Christian couldn't say that. And that's why a lot of Christians lost their lives to lions and other things. Because they couldn't say that Caesar is Lord. Because they already confessed that Jesus is Lord. And there's only one Lord in somebody's life. Even if he was the emperor, he's not the Lord. There's only one Lord for the Christian, and that is Jesus Christ. A Lord, in this sense, is the ultimate authority And so it's worth asking, who is the ultimate authority in your life? Who is the curios in your life? Who is the Lord of your life? My money is Lord. My kids are Lord. My job is Lord. My appearance is Lord. The way my house looks in the fall, that's Lord. Pleasure is Lord. Anything else in that Lord spot is idolatry. To confess something in the Greek literally means to say the same thing. And so there's a really important part where we are not making Jesus Christ Lord. It's okay, baby, Evie. We are not making Jesus Christ Lord. It's the truth, church. He actually is Lord. He's King of kings and Lord of lords right now. When we confess that, 
Literally in the Greek, homo logeo, it means to say the same thing. We are just agreeing. We are saying ourselves that, yes, I agree that Jesus is Lord, and he's my Lord. I respect his total authority over, our, over my life. It shows the profound nature of the gospel. While it's easy to see, right, it's easy to access, the truth isn't far off and hard to comprehend. It is actually hard to live it. Because we can say that. We can say that Jesus is Lord, but then it's like, what? Over everything? Over everything I do? Over everything I say? Over everything I look at on here? He's Lord. And you get that. Where Moses said, this isn't, this isn't hard to see. It's not hard to get. But boy, is it hard to live. Boy, is it hard to live every day when we submit to Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives. That's why it has to come where? Through a heart full of faith first. We have to believe first. If we don't actually believe it, then don't bother saying it. And one of the biggest problems in the evangelical church today is false professions of faith. And we've been sold a cheap emotional conversion narrative where we are moved to tears and we raise our hand, we respond to the altar call with emotional manipulation with the style of music and the lights and the smoke machines and dancing cats or whatever else is on stage, right? And we make a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, or worse, we accept him into our hearts as our personal Lord and Savior. And do we even understand what that means? A lot of times, no. Once again, depending on religious zeal and emotion as the indicator of a religious experience is a terrible way to understand if you're saved or not. But yet that's what so many in the church want to do, want to manipulate into you, you having an emotional experience with Jesus Christ and therefore you think you're saved. But you might not be because you've got to believe from a heart full of faith in the facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you've got to confess it with your mouth and live it that he is Lord, the text tells us. This week in men's Bible study, night version, not that there's anything wrong with the morning version, but night version, shameless plug, we studied the passage of Simon the sorcerer who professed faith and even got baptized, but he quickly realized that he was not a true disciple. He saw the work of the Holy Spirit falling on people, and the first thing he says is, hey, I want that. How much money does it cost? Give it to me. Like, dude, Peter just rips into him and says, you have no business being here. You have no part or lot in this matter, Peter tells him. You're a fake. You're a fraud. You want this so that you can look good. You want this so that you can be famous. You want this for whatever else. And we know through church history that Simon the Sorcerer continues his heresy. Many people call themselves Christians, but on what basis? Do you believe in your heart the facts of the gospel? We can't get away from the facts, the, the, the sinless life, the sacrificial death in our place, the glorious resurrection, the ascension, and now Jesus ruling and reigning on high at the right hand of the Father in sovereignty. Do you believe those facts in your heart? And do you understand your need for a Savior and confessing him as Lord? Sometimes we are fine with Jesus being our Savior, but not being our Lord. And Paul says it's both. Faith is belief. We have to believe in Jesus. 
who he is, what he did, why it matters, and we have to confess his lordship over our lives, then we are saved. And Paul says, this, op- this is open to everyone, and that's where Paul lands the plane. Look at verse 11. He says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Excuse me, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul quotes as he did in chapter 9, he goes back to Isaiah 28, 16, in context speaking of Jesus being the cornerstone, or rather the Messiah in that context in Isaiah being the cornerstone, what the whole plan of God depends on. Paul reaffirms that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And the idea of not be put to shame when there sort of comes into play is probably judgment day. Paul references elsewhere in his epistles that that our faith would result in not being ashamed at the day of Jesus' coming. That's a good plan, guys. We don't want to be embarrassed when Jesus Christ comes back. We don't want to be ashamed. And really, fundamentally, right, we want to be found authentic. We want to be found legit. We don't want to be Simon the sorcerer when Jesus comes back. We want to have authentic faith. And we want to have a confession that is true. And Paul says in in a few other places that we need to keep the end in mind. We look forward to Christ's return. We don't want to be ashamed. And Paul also reaffirms the everyone part of the story by saying in verse 12 that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all. This offer of salvation is not restricted by ethnicity. Jews aren't in any specific advantage here. God will bestow his riches on everyone and anyone, but anyone who does what? Verse 13 tells us, and he quotes the prophet Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Did you catch that? And a few things to dig out, right? First, this offer of salvation is open to everyone. And it should hurt your head because we just came from chapter 9 where we're talking about election, where it's like, well, some people are elected to salvation, some people are elected to judgment. And we have to remember the role of the will in this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you are going to continue to reject Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, you will never call on him to be saved. But those that do call on him will be saved. This is part of God's secret counsel, God's secret knowledge of how this works. It's God's purposes in election. Will you call on him for salvation? The will is involved, and there are people who are elected for judgment who will refuse to call on Jesus for salvation, and God knows who they are. The fact that you would call on Jesus for, for salvation shows that he is drawing his elect to himself. But also, note that this is a very specific calling. Not just like Simon the sorcerer, who when he got called out said, don't let anything bad happen to me. Pray for me that God won't judge me. It's not a calling out to God to get you out of the punishment that you may deserve. It's a call to Jesus to save you from your sin that you are convicted of and save you from the wrath of God. It means you believe him and you call on him especially to save you. And so what is the nature of faith? Our third point, faith is a calling on Jesus. 
Faith is a calling on Jesus. When it comes to salvation, many people call on many different things in those moments of despair. What we call on for help in those moments of despair is usually what we worship. Israel rejected God, started worshiping all sorts of false idols of their enemies, and God mocks them in several places, but one of the most powerful ones is Isaiah 57 where they're crying out for help and salvation. And and God says, well, when you cry out, let those idols help you. Why don't you call on them? Don't call on me. Call on those idols that you left me for. See how that works out for you. The obvious point is that they cannot. False idols cannot deliver us in the day of trouble. Only calling on Jesus can. Before conversion, famously, Martin Luther, stuck in a massive thunderstorm, cried out, Saint Anne, save me and I will become a monk. And he did. Then he read the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) We who believe and trust when everything else in life seems to be hitting the fan, we who believe and trust and call on the name of Jesus, that shows where our salvation and our hope is anchored We know this from our own relationships, mirrored in our human relationships. When you have that day where everything just blows up, who's your first call? Who's that person in your life? When we think about that and the concept of Christ in our hearts, is Christ who we call upon. What do we do then after we've called on him? Fine, we've called on him for salvation. The whole context of the passage is salvation. We've called on him for salvation. Then what do we do as Christians? What does God want us to do? And one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 116. And and the psalmist addresses this in verses 12 and 13. He says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of my salvation and I will call on the name of the Lord. The psalmist is saying, God's done so much for me. He's blessed me with everything I have, but first and foremost, the biggest blessing is salvation itself. What can I possibly give back to God for that salvation? Obviously, the answer theoretically is nothing. But you know what God says? He says, keep calling on me. Keep coming to me. He says, the the illustration of the empty cup Right? Our cup is empty, and who do we go to fill it? God. And so we're saying how much we value God by the idea we keep going back to God himself. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not just a one-time, hey, thanks for the salvation. I'll see you in heaven when I get there in 60 or 70 years or whatever that looks like. No, no, no. It's, it's this relationship where we're continually dependent on God. If you continue to go to somebody as your first call, if you continue to go to that person, what does that say? That you value them, that you love them. That's what we are saying. When we continue to go to our creator when we're empty, when we can continue to go to our creator when we are lost and stuck in sin, that says we value him. We hold him above all other things. And so Christians continue to call on Christ as our refuge and our God. We call on Jesus initially for salvation from sin, but then we keep on calling on him. Many of us could give great testimony to God of when we finally bowed the knee and called on the name of Jesus for salvation. Do you notice, though, in this passage, there are two words that that kind of keep coming up. One's belief and one's 
saved or salvation. And so it's only fitting that the big idea includes both of those words. We, we have a need to be saved from our sin. Many are confused as the, to the exact nature of true saving faith. But ultimately, saving faith can be summarized as this. True saving faith is believing in Jesus. True saving faith is believing on Jesus. There's, there's a, a spiritual reality at work that, that few people in this world even realize exist, right? Sin and evil exist. Every once in a while, we see the curtain kind of cracked open, and we see evil spill out, or we see spin, sin spill out when it affects our lives. We're reminded that the world is broken by sin, and we need a Savior. We are reminded that individually, maybe in those times, we are broken by sin, and we need a Savior. And there's only one Savior and only one true saving faith, and that requires believing in Jesus. Yet so many versions of true saving faith, even in the Christian church, are alive and well today. The Word of God defines faith, and Romans 10 is one of the best places to go to see what that definition is and what it is not. It is not a matter of religious zeal or emotion. There is knowledge It needs to be knowledge of Jesus Christ. Emotions are involved, but the truth of faith cannot merely be an emotional experience. Faith requires a specific knowledge in the plan of God and Jesus Christ. God in the flesh coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death, being risen from the dead victoriously, and now ruling and reigning at God's right hand. Faith is knowing that, but also confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives. Not just the get out of hell quick card, but actually having him as Lord and King of our lives. And we call on Jesus initially for salvation, and we continue to call on Jesus, our King, to sustain us, to provide us the strength we need, the perseverance we need in the faith. And the grace of this message, church, that we hold out is that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so what is true saving faith in a religious landscape that is getting squishier by the day. We of all people need to be crystal clear on this. And Paul tells us this from Romans 10 this morning, that true saving faith is believing in Jesus. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the truth, the clarity. We thank you that your message of salvation is near to us. It's in our hearts. It's on our lips. We pray that it is reflected in our lives. Lord, I pray for those who may be here who have not submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord of their lives. Maybe those who don't understand that they need a Savior. Would you do your work of conviction and opening eyes and granting faith and and repentance this morning? Lord, I pray for those who, who may be stake their claim of salvation on emotion or religious experience, that you would open their eyes to the depth of what is needed. The confession of Jesus as Lord, the knowledge of Jesus. And may we all reflect what is true saving faith in the belief that we have in who you have provided in Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And we pray it in his name. Amen.